Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network and the African Studies Podcast, part of a continuing series of podcasts on books, not only on Africa, but on a host of other topics. My name is Jim Lance, and I am very pleased today to have as my guest Professor Michelle Moyd, uh, Associate Professor of History at Indiana University in Bloomington. We'll be talking about her book, Violent Intermediaries, African Soldiers, Conquest and Everyday Colonialism in German East Africa. It's published by Ohio University Press uh, in 2014, and it's part of the new African history series uh, with the academic editors Gene Allman, Alan Isaacman, and Derek Peterson. If I may, I'd just like to read a bit about from the back cover about Michelle's book. I was um, struck by Jamie Munson's uh, comment in her blurb, Jamie says, Michelle Moyd offers a uniquely empathetic reading of colonial sources and a new narrative voice as she uncovers the histories of, histories of actors that have been mythologized, misused, and misunderstood for more than a century. And these actors are the Askari, A-S-K-R-I, a key Swahili word, uh, African soldiers recruited in the 1890s to fill the ranks of the German East African Colonial Army. Lauded by the Germans for their loyalty during the East Africa campaign of World War I, they were reviled by Tanzanians for the violence they committed during the making of the colonial state between 1890 and 1918. Violent intermediaries situates, situates these Askari in their everyday household, community, military, and constabulary roles as men who helped make colonialism in German East Africa. By linking microhistories with wider 19th century African historical processes, Professor Moyd shows how the Askari, as soldiers and colonial intermediaries, built the colonial state while simultaneously carving out paths to respectability, becoming men of influence within their local contexts. Through its focus on the making of empire from the ground up, Violent Intermediaries offers a fresh perspective on African colonial troops as state-making agents and critiques the mythologies surrounding the Askari by focusing on the nature of colonial violence. Welcome to the program, Michelle. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Um, I always like to find out what makes African historians tick, what... uh, (laughs) how they became interested in studying Africa, and how they focused on a particular topic uh, as an expression of their interest. So could you just tell me a bit about yourself, about your background, and why you decided to focus on the Iskari and German East Africa? Sure. Um, There are several ways I could answer this. I think... um Probably the most immediate um, is the you know biographical detail that uh, I'm African American. My father's African American, and he was in the Air Force for uh, almost 30 years. Um, so I grew up in uh, in military environments, 
Um, and I also grew up keenly aware of being um, being African American. My father uh, insisted at a very early age that I learn the history of, um, of of black people in the United States. So I I think I always kind of had um, a sense of of the importance of understanding where people came from and and how societies shape them um, in that way. Uh, later on, I myself joined the Air Force, and I too um, sort of participated in this, uh, you know, this culture of um, of violence in a way, obviously very differently than than what is conveyed in this book. But um, I came to really question my position in the military as an African-American person. And um, in the process of, of my career in the Air Force, I had an opportunity to, to, um, to teach at the Air Force Academy. And as preparation for that, um, for that job, uh, the Air Force paid for me to get a master's degree at the University of Florida um, in the mid-90s. And that was when I first undertook a, um, you know, an academic uh, or an intellectual um, project of trying to understand um, African history, and uh, and then in the course of actually teaching at the Air Force Academy and coming to um, reaching the conclusion that um, that this East African campaign of World War One was a really great kind of way to reflect on the position of black soldiers in a white army, um, I, I decided that I really wanted to pursue that as a, as a project um, over the long haul. So I left the Air Force and started a PhD at Cornell, and that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years, more or less, is tracing the history of these black soldiers who fought in a white army. Um, and, and really, I think the question that informs, that has informed my research all along is, is how we understand these men as, as men and what motivated them and um, what made them tick. Uh, and also what it says, what their, their history tells us about the ways that, um, that militaries use certain demographics uh, to, 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 you know, to fill out their ranks and to um, help them conduct their, their operations, however construed. Um, so that, that's sort of the, the long answer to a short question. <laughs> well, it's a great answer because um, I've often encountered people uh, in conversation when people ask, why, why are you studying Africa? It's so exotic. And I said, no, there are many linkages between what, what happened in the African past and our own. And I think your answer just amplifies why this book is really about so much more than this relatively narrow period of time and relatively small group of people. You deal with some major themes um, and you've sort of articulated them in your answer to my opening question. You deal with issues of masculinity. You deal with issues of patronage and power. And you deal with issues of the relationship of the military to the construction of the colonial state, and also I think laterally, uh, <clears throat> I was talking, I was communicating with you earlier about the relationship of the military, uh, the U.S. military in particular, uh, in relation to nation building. But I think you also raise the larger question, which you address at the end of your book, and maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that: um, the question of why people work 
for organizations such as the state or the colonial state that employ violence and coercion in ways that often mitigate against the best interests of the people involved. So I think your book really can be amplified much more uh, into areas much greater than on first blush would appear when we read your book. Thank you. Glad um, to hear that. <laughs> And also I was struck why I read Jamie Munson's comment and her her description of the empath- empathetic reading you make uh, in your study. Uh, one thing that really struck me about the book was your your creative use of sources and how you went about reconstructing what you call in your book Os- Ascari realities. Um, and in reading the book, it seems to me that the Ascari, particularly those who served during the German period of, of occupation, fit the maxim, old soldiers never die, they simply fade away. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of sources did you use? Where, what kinds of silences did you encounter? And how did you, how did you go about trying to overcome the gaps and omissions and um, silences in the story of the Ascari? Well, I'll start with um, your second um, sort of point there about silences. The biggest silence, quite obviously, is that we have almost no um, sources that give us direct or, you know, as direct as a story can get access to um, the voices of these men themselves. Um, There really aren't, uh, there really isn't much. And um, so that necessitates using the sources that are available, which are, you know, quite abundant, actually. There are um, colonial, the memoirs of colonial officers and administrators. Um, there are archival documents that, um, that were generated by the colonial government in various capacities. Uh, there are war diaries. Uh, there are missionary reports and documents, um, published memoirs, as well as unpublished archival uh, or you know diaries and, and letters and such that are housed in archives. There's a lot of photography actually, which is um, which has been useful in certain ways, but also presents certain problems um, that I can elaborate on if you want. Um, well, yeah, I like I love your description. Uh, unfortunately, it's a it's a this isn't a visual program. Right. But your, your your description of the um the cover mm-hmm. and sort of the sort of the the messages and symbolism of the cover. Yeah, and your book is profusely illustri- illustrated for an academic book. I think Ohio did did a pretty good job with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also kind of reminded me of the photographs of Edward Curtis and of Native Americans and how he mythologized and kind of created this this image of uh, the loyal, uh, noble, mm-hmm. savage, if you will. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that's the thing, right? The, ph- the photography is really useful in as much as it gives us some visual evidence of certain um, scenarios and settings. But we also have to be very cognizant, obviously, of how the photos were produced um, you know, keeping in mind that technologies were quite different then, um, you know, photography, it, t- it took a long time for, uh, you know, um, what's the what's the word I want? Um, I'm not a, obviously I'm not an expert photographer, <laughs> but, you know, it took a long time to actually produce a photo in those in, in 100 years ago. Um, and that meant that that means that probably most of the scenes that we see in the photographs that are available were staged in a way. Um, That doesn't mean that they're utterly useless. It just means we have to be very critical of how we read them and, um, and take what information 
we can from them, but also use them to tell a story about representation um, and what purposes that served, uh, what what purposes those representations served for the people who who produced them. Um, but you know, it's it's a it's definitely a a difficult kind of source to use. And um, in my book, I really wanted to stay away from the uh, what I think is a sometimes problematic usage of photography in um, in historical texts where they're used to kind of demonstrate uh, they're used to illustrate a point, but they're not, there's no critical reading of them embedded in the text. So I tried to, um, I tried to do a little bit of that in the book and I'm certain I could have done more, but um, anyway, so uh, what else? There are newspapers, uh, lots of um, uh, colonial, colonial newspapers that were generated by, uh, colonial organizations, both in Germany and uh, in the colony. Um, and then let's see what else. There are also British perspectives that I used, tried to incorporate. So especially during uh, World War One, um, a lot of there were a lot of um, there's a lot of primary source material that was generated by um, the British Army that was operating in East Africa. So I went to um, the National Archives in Kew in London um, to to look at those, and those are quite helpful in giving uh, kind of an outsider perspective on the German Army as they were operating in the field. Um, so, uh, so I tried to attack the problem from you know using as much material as I could. Um, to try and recreate a um, uh, like a, a portrait from all of these fragments of material that I had. Um. Yeah, I see. Um, I think at one point, if I remember correctly, you, you talked about reading these sources against the grain, mm-hmm. and um, I'd like to kind of put, nudge you a bit more into explaining that a bit to me because when I uh, when I was doing my graduate training, it was the heyday of, and this is aging me, of nationalist historiography, uh-huh. where where people such as the Ascari were seen as a little more than collaborators and mercenaries, and we were all looking for resistance yeah. to the state. And these people were not the locus of resistance. Yeah. But I, um, so I'm interested in sort of like how you read against the grain, and let, maybe we can just use a concept that's in your title, the concept of intermediary, as a way of showing how your approach differs from certainly the nationalist perspective, and how your approach differs in what what kinds of contributions this approach makes to our understanding what really is a much more nuanced and fluent, fluent more nuanced <laughs> and fluid situation than was sort of apparent when I was doing my training. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, that's a great point and, and one that I was keenly interested in investigating. And I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in, uh, in my early dissertation writing phases trying to, um, figure out the best way to go about it. Um, so, I mean, the, the problem with the the nationalist well let me say the the nationalist historiography existed for a reason and that was because you know new African nation states uh, needed and wanted a history that would reflect 
that reflect their positions as, um, you know, as members of the, you know, global community, as nation states, um, and that would also give them a, a narrative uh, upon which to, you know, to move forward into um, into the independence era. And so the nationalist historiographies tended to celebrate, um, you know, particular kinds of, of past uh, moments. So uh, in Tanzania in particular, the, the touchstone nationalist moment was the Maji Maji rebellion of 1905 to 1907, in which, um, you know, something like a third of the territory of Tanzania was perceived by the Germans to be in resistance, in rebellion against the colonial authority. And um, the nationalist historiography really made the case for understanding that moment as a proto-national moment. Um, and they used, um, you know, it used oral histories that were collected by uh, University of Dar es Salaam students and and uh, and historians of that generation um, assembled that uh, that data into a narrative that that really um, that really served the purposes of the new state. Um, as you know. And of course, as a, as a part of that, as you rightly mentioned, the, the Ascari were cast as um, collaborators, as mercenaries, as brutes, as people who were firmly on the wrong side of history in terms of um, the Tanzanian resistance narrative, which, of course, was celebrating the rebels um, and the, the people who fought against colonialism. Uh, there was really no place for the Ascari in that narrative except for as as people who served the colonial state with great um, with great violence and and um, and selfishly so right um, and you know I get that I completely understand why why that had to happen in that way but it didn't fit with um, my own sort of understanding of um, why soldiers sign up to serve in armies or why they, why they end up becoming parts of armies. Um, and the, the, the kind of simple violence narrative that was applied to them, that they just sort of, they were violent for the sake of being violent, also didn't make sense to me because that would have kind of required that it was an army of, um, of sadists or, you know, uh, an army of people with deep psychological problems or something. And that too, just didn't make sense to me. I mean, typically armies are built of very ordinary uh, men and women. So I really wanted to challenge that, that construction. And uh, it wasn't until quite late in my dissertation process that the the literature on intermediaries really kind of became available. Um, and that was really the hook that I needed. And so I'm, of course, very grateful to the scholars who, um, who, who uh, did that research and brought and brought the concept into conversation uh, among Africanists. Um, intermediaries being people who um, kind of helped facilitate the placement or the the emplacement of the state into 
the Tanzanian landscape, the colonial state, into the Tanzanian political landscape um, who through through their everyday activities. And this is not to say that the that everyone loved the Ascari and that they facilitated lots of social mobility for people in some kind of positive way. That's not the point I want to make. The point I want to make is that the Ascari um, became people who um, helped the colonial state to entrench itself in particular ways. Um, some Ascari intermarried with uh, women from, if not local populations, then at least uh, East African populations um, that uh, sort of created ties across longer distances than one would have thought. Ascari were also extremely visible in terms of their mobility. They, even though there weren't that many of them, uh, they were constantly moving. They were uh, delivering messages and they were escorting colonial um, administrators. They were doing patrols. They were doing, uh, you know, expeditions. So um, they were visible to, and, and because they were uniformed, they were quite visible in the work that they did. Um, so there's a way in which even if they were not um, engaging people in a productive way, they were creating a kind of narrative about the colonial state that, that um, I argue helped to shape um, or helped to, uh, I guess, make, make visible or make apparent the possibility of being involved in a colonial modernity. Um, I think that's kind of the, the crux of, of what I'm trying to say here. It's not that people saw the Ascari and thought, you know, um, oh, I really want to be like them or, oh, I really want to, um, you know, I want to be part of a, the Ascari community. Certainly that was part of it for some people, but it's more about the idea of them as agents of colonialism and um, and kind of their ability to disperse that vision across a wide terrain, um, making the idea of a colonial state visible to um, to many East Africans. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> well, certainly, um, in my opinion, you effectively refute the notion of of these people being pathological uh, criminals <laughs> seeking their own self-interest and just enjoying sadistically violence for their own sake. But I'd like to move on to how you look at the Ascari, because another another thing I really liked about the book is you can almost smell the the dust and feel the sweat of of Ascari life. Uh, the everyday life, as you call it, the everyday processes of everyday colonialism. Um, so my question now is, let's talk a bit about the Ascari themselves. Why did Africans choose to become Ascari? And how does this relate to a notion you, you emphasize throughout the book of the big man? Mm. Um, well, I think that the first thing that needs to be said is that and this is something that took me quite a, a long time to realize, um, is that the, the notion of choice and, and kind of voluntarism in becoming Ascari has to be qualified in as much as um, it was an era in which uh, a number of, of parts of the African continent were undergoing um, massive upheaval in terms of um, warfare, uh, the building of, of um, 
standing armies and and state building processes that were uh, massively disruptive to populations across the continent. And the, the two that I sort of focus on in the first chapter of the book are um, are what is today Sudan, the nation state of Sudan, and um, and then of course Tanzania. Um, and what I tried to show is that there were processes underway in both of those regions that made um, made soldiering an option that uh, that was well appealing perhaps to some, but also um, the uh, the only viable option for for many young men to to make a living that would lead to a kind of respectability or big man status, as I as I refer to it in the book. Um, it was a time in which, you know, there were colonial encroachments, um, the shutting down of old, uh, old, older ways of um, becoming respectable, um, uh, the, the diversion of men into migrant labor uh, economies. And, you know, there it's not that there weren't possibilities for making a living, but the possibilities for making a living and and achieving the kind of um, status that that would allow men to become patrons themselves were shrinking. And um, and so what I argue is that the 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 men who ended up becoming colonial soldiers um, and specifically German colonial soldiers were men who probably had some kind of past um, or, or origins in places where soldiering was known to be was a was a, a known uh, possibility for achieving for making a living and achieving a kind of respectability and and so in a way it it um, uh, service in the Schutztruppe um, kind of self-selected uh, men who who found that it, it made sense in their in their sort of life trajectory, um, if that if that makes sense. Yeah, sure, sure does. Um. And I so I should say, in fact, you know, I started with the idea that we have to question this the, the idea of, of voluntarism. Um, the most striking example of that is that many of the the soldiers who came from uh, Sudan. Um, probably had backgrounds as slave soldiers. And, and what I mean by that is that they were probably captured as young men by um, any number of uh, kind of um, slaving agents in who were operating in the region in the mid-19th century. Um, and those young, those boys and young men then more or less grew up in militaries. They grew up experiencing... Um, warfare. They started out as kind of apprentices to other soldiers and then became soldiers themselves and moved up the ranks and perpetuated um, and reproduced that process over over the decades. Um, so, uh, so the notion that they were volunteers is not quite right. Um, but it is, I think we can make the case that for some men like them, um, the military appeared to be 
the only option available for for a viable kind of uh, for making a living in a in a viable way. Right. Um, well, I also I think um, you're connect you're making you 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 implied in this in your answer just now something that really also struck me about your book was sort of the linkages between pre-colonial militarization and you mentioned Sudanese uh, the, the people labeled the Sudanese often had a belligerent or background or a history of being slave warriors and and linkages between that the pre-colonial military cultures and those that evolved under German occupation um, you also talk about how these linkages relate to what you call the Ascari way of war. Could you talk a little bit about that concept and how the Ascari were trained and socialized into a a new but not terribly, but may perhaps not totally unfamiliar, unfamiliar military life and culture? Yeah. Um, so the Ascari way of war um, that I describe is um, involves certain kinds of practices that I think clearly link to a pre-colonial past um, and and probably could be found in other contexts as well if we looked closely. Um, but uh, so one is the is the idea that um, when you fight, uh, women and children are fair game as part of the, the spoils of war, that that women and children um, can be captured and um and taken uh, along on these long expedition uh, expeditionary operations, uh, and then, in fact, incorporated into soldiers' households. So that, in fact, what they were doing in the course of um, of warfare was uh, potentially increasing their domestic wealth, their wealth in people. Um, and that is something that you can see in in descriptions of warfare in uh, in the first part of the 19th century for sure, um, in in contexts that range from southern Africa all the way up to to northeastern Africa. Those are the um, so I haven't looked as closely at Western Africa. I suspect you would find similar patterns, but the those are the sort of broad regional contexts that I've looked at. Um, in a comparative way, um, another is the is the idea of the raid, um, the raid in which um, you know uh, you don't you don't engage an enemy directly on a battlefield in some kind of Napoleonic way, or uh, you know in a sort of the image that we have of traditional military history as as this as confrontation between two uh, you know well equipped and organized armies. Um, that's not so much what the Ascari were doing. Instead, they were um, practicing a, a kind of warfare that that had uh, guerrilla elements to it. Um, certainly, they used concealment. They used small unit formations. Um, they used surprise attacks. Um, you know, um, so the the idea of the raid is another thing that um, I think looks more like pre-colonial African history than it does uh, African military history than it does, uh, say, what was going on in Europe in the 19th century. Although, of course, there are exceptions like, you know, um, the Franc-Tureur in, um, in uh, the Frank, uh, sorry, the Franco-Prussian War uh, would be an example of, of um, 
you know, Europeans using a kind of guerrilla style uh, warfare. So, um, so those are two examples of, of what I consider to be the Ascari way of war. And what was really uh, useful about it to the Schutztruppe, I think, is that they could um, apply, they could use those, um, those elements of East African styles of warfare, incorporate them into their own practices in ways that were productive for them, of course, because uh, it meant that they could confront their opponents more on their terms, more on the, you know, in terms of, of how wars were fought in, in Eastern Africa. Um, they could also ensure that they were meeting the, um, they, that they were keeping their soldiers happy by allowing them to loot and to pillage and to uh, seize people, right? Um, so there's a way in which the, the conduct of warfare that the Ascari brought with them into, or the understanding of warfare that the Ascari brought with them into the, into the Schutztruppe served German purposes and probably taught them quite a bit about the nature of warfare in East Africa along the way. Well, you've sort of um, led nicely into my next question uh, relating to the Ascari way of, way of war, and that is about the training process. Um, you've, you've basically answered the question by showing or in, intimating ways that the training was different from the, from the kinds of training that German rank-and-file soldiers receive in Europe. Um, but in what ways was it similar? And in particular, in what ways did the treatment of the African soldiers differ? Was, was the treatment the same, but also different from the ways that, say, disciplined German soldiers were disciplined? I think there are actually more similarities than differences, and, and this is something I haven't systematically looked at, but my sense is that um, the Germans had, uh, you know, over over the course of the 19th century, um, had a history of brutalizing their soldiers, uh, punishing them quite severely for, um, for all manner of infractions, um, and uh, and that they brought those kinds of expectations and 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 modes of disciplining their soldiers with them to East Africa. Um, so certainly, uh, Ascari who who did not perform or who fell out of fell out of line with German expectations could anticipate uh, receiving harsh punishments, which could, in the worst case, include um, this uh, this kind of ritualistic. Flogging, um, which was known as the Hamsa Ishrini um, in Swahili, uh, the 25, um, which was 25 lashes with a, a, a hide whip. It's quite a severe punishment. Um, the Germans were not alone in this, by the way. The British also uh, um, had a history of flogging their soldiers. But um, so, so there's that um, kind of carryover from the German. Context and another uh, very, to me, a very clear carryover is the emphasis on drill and ceremony um, that that Ascari were expected to participate in on more or less a daily basis. That you know they got up in the morning and they did um, they did parade drill, parade practice, and they practiced drilling. Um, they did repetitive um, they did repetitive training exercises. They did uh, target practice. 
and they also did war games, which was another German um, kind of innovation um, from earlier in the 19th century, where they would go out and actually perform some kind of scenario of a, a war-based, uh, a war, a wartime situation where soldiers were ostensibly practicing what they would do in, in a real combat situation. Um, so there are all these ways in which, oh, and, and, and soldiers actually were given commands in German. So there was a, a, a way in which, uh, even though uh, Ascari were not known to be great German speakers, um, they, you know, some of them clearly did learn it, but it doesn't seem to have been an across-the-board kind of thing. Uh, they still were responding to German commands um, that were issued by their NCOs and officers. So, um, so it, in some ways, I've thought of it as a as an overlay onto African military practices that then created this kind of um, hybrid uh, new way of war. Um, or you know a, a training method that then um, that that engaged both the German um, uh, history of training soldiers, but that also was had to be responsive to um, African soldiers' um, willingness to participate in in that program. Well, I want to get. I will move on to later. I really would really hope we can talk about the really fascinating parts of your book that deal with theatricality and performance and this, these ritual, ritualized demonstrations of authority and power. But I can't let you go without um, discussing one more of your concepts, okay. the, con- the concept of everyday colonialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that mean? And what does it add to our understanding of colonialism writ large? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I should say that the, you know, the reason that I ended up using that concept uh, was, was because partly because of the nature of my sources. I, as I mentioned right at the outset of our, of our talk, I, I didn't have much that gave me direct access to the voices of the Ascari. And, and so what that led me to do was to think about what the, the sources that I had, what they told me about, about the Ascari. So, um, you know, one of the kinds of sources that I had um, very early on were was um, like pay books and equipment lists that uh, so which showed the kinds of equipment that Ascari had been issued, and uh, the Germans were quite meticulous at, at um, expecting their Ascari to keep their equipment in order and also keeping track of what equipment they had, and so I got really interested in. I think it was a source that said something about, you know, Ascari such and such um, has lost his boots, something like that, you know. Um, and at first I thought, well, this doesn't help me much. You know, this is not this is not not very useful information. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that if I got enough of that kind of information, I might be able to make a case for um, understanding their sort of. Um, what was important to them, what they thought they were doing, what kinds of uh, struggles developed between them and their officers, uh, you know, what were the what were the kind of everyday um, um, artifacts that, or um, uh, yeah, I guess artifacts that that would help me understand 
them as people operating in in this colonial environment. So the the idea of everyday colonialism really kind of emerged out of that. And what I what I wanted to get at was the way that practices, you know, sort of um, the the things that we think of as a given for soldiers and police, the you know the the, the patrols and the um, the combat operations, the expeditions, the the violence, really. Um, uh, how we could see that those things as practice, and how we could then talk about practice as being the features of building. Um, a, a new state, a colonial state. Um, so I was really, I, it was partly source-driven, but it, I was also really interested in trying to understand the processes um, by which these Ascari were engaged in constructing a colonial state, both through conquest, but also through their kind of, uh, maybe we would think of it as, as their administrative um, tasks, you know, the, the carrying of, of messages and the escorting and, and policing type duties that, that, um, that really, uh, tax collection, involvement in tax collection, you know, all of these things that really, if there was a colonial state that we can talk about, they were the ones who made it function, um, in a very practical kind of way. Um, so that's what I meant by that concept and, and using that concept Helped direct my um, helped direct the way that I read the sources um, to you know to to really focus on aspects of mobility um, and how local circumstances influence particular outcomes um, and to think and to and to not take for granted any actions as being representative of one particular thing, but in, but instead to think about um, you know these actions as being contextual and 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 not being obvious to really think about them as having their own kind of significance, um, and hopefully then putting all of that together to be able to tell a bigger story about the making of of colonialism. Well, that when we were talking earlier about illustrations, I'm thinking in particular in regard to to your your response just now, the, the illustration of the three African soldiers, two of whom are wearing boots, one is barefoot. They're all wearing fezes, but they're in different, uh, they're wearing them in different ways. One's wearing them in a rather jaunty way, another's kind of nonchalantly has it on the back of his head. Um, and then you just kind of, something you just said about if there is a colonial state uh, struck a chord with me, and not only in regard to that photo, this photograph, which kind of shows the uh, limitations of the of the state and how it wishes to be how the Germans wish their state to be perceived and that leads to your really really fascinating discussion about theatricality and performance and ritual which to me I I kind of felt that the overt physical violence the the raids and the attacks uh, really kind of paled in comparison to the ritualistic and performative aspects that the Ascari uh, did showing what the state was, even if it really wasn't mm-hmm. what it was. Yeah. If, if, you know what I yeah, mean? Yes. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, that too was um, something that I spent a lot of time working up to um, being able to make the argument. And, um, and partly the reason it took me so long was because, again, there's a way in which if you've been in the military, um, so all of this just feels very obvious, right? The parades, the, the drill, um, the, the customs and courtesies, you know, saluting and, and all of that stuff. There's a way in which it's it just is taken for granted. But what I came to realize is that that all of that was doing work for the colonial state, for the Germans, um, and it was projecting it, it was a projecting an image that they thought would help convince um, col- their colonial subjects, um, Africans who lived within the orbit of the, the stations where these um, Ascari lived and worked. Um, that, you know, that, that these performances would convince them of the colonial state's power and, and permanence and, um, you know, and, and kind of strength. So, um, and so then in trying to, to um, imagine what those performances were doing, of course, I run into the problem of, of not being able to really access the reception um, on the part of those who, who witnessed these performances. But I still think um, it's important to, to not, again, and this goes to the everyday colonialism thing, uh, it's important not to accept that these performances were doing one thing or the other. The colonial state certainly thought it was doing something by having these uh, these big um, parades and and by having their Ascari um, go through all of all of this ceremonial um, all these ceremonial activities, that doesn't mean that that message was received by the uh, by African populations in the way that they wanted, and it also doesn't take into account what the Ascari thought they were doing when they were involved in all of this stuff, right? So. Um, so yeah, I mean, in the end, it it was um, trying to again question per, question these uh, kind of obvious manifestations of military um, authority and and the things that militaries always do, um, and to to really think about what meanings are involved in in those activities. <laughs> Um, speaking of activities, um, your book also dispelled for me a notion of uh, the soul of the Ascari and their their participation in the colonial state. It's sort of the Ascari saw it as an arena for their expressions of their masculinity. But again, another part part of your book really highlights the role that women played in the creation of, of soldiers, Ascari soldiers becoming soldiers, but also shaping the nature of concepts such as masculinity and femininity. Could you kind of talk a bit about that? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the uh, things that drew me in early on to this project was uh, reportage that came out of the surrender scene um, at the end of World War One when uh, the the Schutztruppe commander 
um, of operations during the East African campaign, Powell von Leto Forbeck surrendered his army to the British uh, in northern Rhodesia in late November of 1918. And the descriptions of that scene included um, these really colorful um, observations about uh, about the um, the assemblage of people who were present at the at that surrender, and among them were uh, women and children who were you know um, who uh, who had obviously been along on the campaign uh, and who uh, seemed to be very much a part of of uh, you know, what Leto Forbeck had been doing um, for the last couple of years of the war. Um, so the presence of women was clear to me. Um, and what was less clear was, um, you know, who they were, what, what, who they, why they were there, who they were, um, and, and why it was that the colonial, um, that German colonial officers permitted that kind of arrangement. I mean, when you think about modern armies operating in the field, um, you don't typically think of family members or, uh, you know, women and children being there on the scene. Um, and that just kind of made me begin to look for evidence of, um, you know, who these women were in the same way that I was looking for evidence of who the Ascari were. Um, and, you know, people will not be surprised to hear uh, that it's difficult to find um, good information or detailed information about who the women were, although there there are glimpses, of course, that some of them were captives um, who were incorporated into households. Some of them were brought with soldiers um, into the army, so Sudanese uh, troops uh, brought their families with them right from the beginning, from the formation of the Schutztruppe in, in 1889, 1890. Um, and uh, what became clear to me later in the research was that these women were actually um, what enabled the Ascari to, to make claims to being men of, men of means and men of status, because, uh, you know, a man, a, a a boy could not be a man or a young man could not be an adult male, a man until he had uh, formed his own household. And, and that is kind of a fundamental marker of household, uh, a, a fundamental marker of respectability in, in many um, African cultures that, you know, you have to demonstrate your manhood by having um, a family and, and preferably a sizable family. So, uh, women were a part were a part and parcel of that. Um, they also clearly were part of the Schutztruppe's logic of, um, um, of, of of building a cheap labor force. They women were the ones who who did a lot of the kind of support work that in modern armies is done by a you know full on logistical outfit. Um, women did the cleaning and the cooking and uh, nursing and um, um, carrying equipment and, and setting up camps at the end of the day when, when soldiers were on the march and, and all sorts of things like that. So there's a way in which the domestic labor of um, the Ascari's households were also um, were also the basis of 
the Army's labor pool. Um, and yes, and then, of course, there's the question of how one demonstrates uh, one's masculinity. It, it has to be in conjunction with some sort of understanding of what constitutes femininity. And um, and here I think there's, I, there's probably a lot more work to be done um, in terms of um, understanding Ascari women's femininity and what they were bringing to the table in terms of, um, you know, uh, um, their contributions to shaping the gendered norms of, of the colonial army. Um, but certainly it, it's important to note that any kind of masculinity that was built among Ascari in East Africa was always in conversation with notions of femininity. And, um, and you know, so there's one example in my book that, that, I, that I can think of right now um, where you know, Ascari uh, were working alongside other men, um, porters and auxiliaries and, and such. Um, and one can easily imagine that uh, the Ascari were also um, building their sense of masculinity off of differentiating themselves from the other men who were around them. Uh, and certainly the porters would have been in a feminized position vis-a-vis -vis the Ascari because of the work that they did, which was carrying goods, um, which in kind of an Ascari-gendered world would have looked more like what women were doing um, in these columns. You know, uh, mm -hmm. carrying carrying goods and carrying equipment was women's work to the Ascari, right? So, um, so there there are these really um, important ways in which the columns themselves were um, represented, uh, you know, these differentiated gender roles um, that went uh, that that uh, kind of encompassed a continuum of of um, uh, gendered identities from the feminine to the masculine. We're getting near the end of our our of our planned hour, um, so I just have a couple, two more questions. Uh, first, uh, uh, after the after the German defeat in, in World War One, the Ascaris disbanded. Is that correct? And what happened to them after the dismantling of the Schutztruppe? Uh, here again, I think there's a lot more work to be done and uh, not something that I ended up spending a lot of time doing myself. But uh, yes, they were interned for a while um, by the British. They were put in internment camps uh, where many of them died of the flu. Uh, there was, uh, you know, of course, a rampant um, influenza epidemic that uh, that had a global impact. East Africa was a part of that, and uh, many Ascari succumbed to the illness in, in these camps. Um, they were, after they were released from the camps, they were ordered to disperse um, more or less to go back to where they came from, which, you know, for, uh, again, this has lots of resonances for, um, you know, contemporary U.S. military too, right? That uh, where one comes from is is, uh, is a complicated question. Does it mean you go back to the last, um, your, your last station? Does it mean that you go back to where you actually came from, you know, where you grew up? Um, so it's unclear the extent to which Ascari returned to um, whatever their their homelands were, if you if you will. Um, what does seem to be 
to emerge in the sources is that some of them ended up going back to the places where they had last um, lived their, in their military lives, their stations, um, and some enclaves of Exascari uh, seemed to form and then um, and and remained kind of visible communities into the British colonial period. Um, but there there really hasn't been much. Um, research done on them. And um, what emerges from my sort of uh, brief engagement with this topic is that they dispersed, and it's very difficult to trace what happened to them as a collective. Um, we, we get sort of these glimpses of them in places. Um, we have a couple of, dispar- a couple of um, uh, discrete life histories that show, um, for example, one soldier who uh, was actually a, a gun boy during World War I, um, eventually making his way to Germany and becoming a, uh, an entertainer in the film industry. Um, and he ended up dying in a concentration camp during World War II because of, um, the, because of Nazi race laws, essentially. But... Um, you know, so we get these glimpses of Ascari lives after the war, but there's not been a a, a good um, there's not been a good um, kind of project yet that has assembled all of that into a real argument about what happened to them. It would require a different kind of research. It would require uh, actually going and talking to descendants of the Ascari and trying to get at you know those uh those lost histories that way um and that to my knowledge has not been done yet but it would be a great project for someone (laughs) (laughs) i i totally agree um and it kind of leads to my last observation and why i think this book is bigger than its subject if if you don't mind my saying so in that way not in a pejorative sense I'd like to read your last one of your last uh, bits. If we better understand how diverse incentives and coercions are conceived and used by states and others to assemble armies to fight for them, we might also develop more sophisticated ways of thinking about soldiers and veterans beyond the heroic platitudes that tend to disavow their everyday realities. So your book sort of implies uh, different ways of thinking. Can you just off the top of your head suggest how your book can help us to think in new and more constructive ways about veterans and what their experiences have been and how they've affected our lives? Oh, um, well, I think the the most important kind of realization for me was the way in which veterans, the, the way in which the Ascari were so tightly tied to the fate of um, the German colonial regime. And, uh, and part of the reason that we don't know much about what happened to them after World War One is that the Germans lost the war and, uh, you know, they lost all their colonies. And so the, 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 the German officers who had acted as the Ascari's patrons um, could no longer protect them, could, could no longer um, ensure that they would be a an important or, um, or visible part of the post post German colonial landscape. 
And, uh, you know, the evidence suggests that many Ascari fell into destitution because of that. Um, so, so to me, the question then is about what a state obligation is to these kinds of people who have done their work of securing um, securing the states, uh, you know, present-day parlance, we'd say national security, right? The you know, people who who um, are responsible for the, the the kind of the the ins and outs of of making people feel better about living um, in a state where there are threats or there seem to be threats all around. Um, you know, what is owed to the people who do that work? And um, so that's one kind of that's one part of it. Um, but there also has to be, I think, a much more um, direct conversation about what we expect these people to do and um, and, and, and which people. Right. I mean, it's it's if you look back at, at the U.S.'s 20th century history, you certainly see evidence of. Um, of military, our military, drawing on particular kinds of populations to fill its ranks, even though ostensibly we have a volunteer military. Um, and the way it does that is by incentivizing uh, incentivizing joining the military. Um, you get benefits. You get you get to go to college. You get um, you get uh, breaks on mortgages. You get uh, if you stay in long enough, you get a pension. Um, used to be the case that you got pretty comprehensive health care that that has changed. But so there are all these ways in which uh, promises are made to veterans, uh, to soldiers um, about what will happen to them after they finish their service and become veterans. And and I think, you know, most veterans uh, believe believed in those things when they were recruited um, they often become disappointed in the aftermath when they find that that the you know the relationship dissipates a bit once they're out of out of service. So I think um, you know that was those were kind of the sets of um, questions that were in my mind as I was thinking about what the larger impact of my work could be. Um, that in understanding the 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 tight the development of this very tight relationship between colonial officers and African troops, what we're looking at is um, a kind of a microcosmic um, representation of what uh, what is in play with many militaries that um, claim to be volunteer uh, volunteer and claim to have um, all these kinds of objectives for taking care of the people who do this work, uh, but which in the end um, often are uh, quite content to, to use them and, and throw them away. Um, and, and, and the, uh, you know, kind of a consequence of that is that, uh, it's, so it's not just that these soldiers are often uh, left on their own, um, and, and left to make their way in a world that doesn't fully understand them. It's also that communities have to figure out ways to, to live with them, right? That uh, veterans who return after combat to families and communities are, are often not well equipped to deal with the realities of their, of their new lives. And, um, 
you know, and what is the what is the state or patron's role in 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 um, in managing that? I think it's an open question that um, that certainly many of us are thinking about these days um, with with uh, you know the kind of stories that we've heard about veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan and and the impact that those are that that they have had on uh, their communities in in some very profoundly negative ways in many cases. Um, and then also the scandals around veterans administration and and what what the what the state owes to these people who've often sacrificed a tremendous amount. Well, well Professor, Professor Professor Michelle Moyd, thank you so much. I think that's a wonderful way to to end our conversation. Um, as with so many great works of history, your book raises many profound questions, not just about the particular topic at hand, the Ascari, during a relatively brief period uh, of time, but about our place in society and what what kind of ideal world we wish to construct and achieve. Um, we've been talking with Professor Michelle Moyd about her book, Violent Intermediaries, African Soldiers, Conquest, and Everyday Colonialism in German East Africa. It's part of the New Histories of Africa series published by Ohio University Press. I really, really want to thank you for spending time with me, and I'm sure our listeners will really benefit from this program and your, your insights. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity and, uh, and for reading my book.